And greetings, brethren, all around the world. I'm very grateful to be able to speak to you in this way. It's unusual that we have this opportunity, and I appreciate it. I love you. I thank you very much for all of you praying for me and praying for this work. I'm getting older. This might be the last time I do this particular program around the world. But I certainly want to give you this vital truth. It's something the world does not understand. Only the true church of God really understands this, brethren. I think most of you realize that. I'm grateful that Mr. Herbert Armstrong introduced this truth as God inspired him to understand it and to understand the fact that we are full sons of God someday too. Other churches do not understand. The former Seventh-day Church of God did not understand. They still don't understand. Outside churches of the Protestant world, the Catholics, they don't get it. God has not opened their minds. A good understanding of those of those who keep His commandments, and we do understand, but it's very important that we realize how unusual this truth is. Yet it's a topic which I think all of you know that the world is all mixed up on. They don't get it. Millions of professing Christians are sometimes worried and they're upset that God allowed the Holocaust. The Jews are upset. Why did God let all our brethren die in the Holocaust? Some of them turned away from God because they don't understand that. Christians have been upset. Why did God allow the Lusitania to sink and drown all these people? Why did God let the Titanic sink and drown all these people? Why does God let little children die of cancer and all the horrible diseases that are striking people? Why did God let Jimmy die? I used to understand that or worry about that. When one of my friends died after a wrestling accident, I told you about that. Jimmy Mallett died right in front of his parents wrestling with a person in a match. And hey, Jimmy and I used to wrestle each other thousands of hours. Why does God allow these things? A lot of us don't understand the trials and tests and why God allows them and why God has not let everybody understand. But God has a purpose in all this and we need to understand it. We really do. We need to understand how unique it is to the true church of God. As I said, the other churches of God, the old Sardis church and others do not understand. God gave one man, Herbert W. Armstrong, the understanding. And checking into that, we haven't found anyone else who understands it. But you can understand it. Most of you do. But I want to review it for those of you who are new and those of you who are old. You need to really get it, be able to explain it to others as things come up. You can tell them this truth and prove it to them from the Bible. It ought to inspire us and move us to realize how great God is. Brethren, let's turn to John chapter 6, first of all, in this explanation here. John chapter 6, and beginning in verse 44, the very words of Jesus Christ. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him up. When? At the last day. And God Almighty said, No one can come to Christ. We can't. These outsiders can't unless God calls them. It's not their fault. Many of them do not understand. They've never even heard the name of Christ. How can they come? So we need to be fair about it and realize that God is fair and He has a purpose. In verse 65, John 6, verse 65, Jesus also said again, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. 
So grasp that, brethren. No one can come to Christ. These Chinese people, people in India, Pakistan, all through the world, they don't get it. It's not their fault. God has not opened their mind yet. And that's the key. It's a matter of timing. And God will open their mind. And we can understand. Yet your Protestant friends, your Catholic friends, your worldly friends, they don't understand. And they don't realize what the purpose is of God in all of this. Turn, if you would, at this time, brethren, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 And I want you to notice this here. In John chapter 10, Jesus said in this very vital passage, He said in verse 7, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door to the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the shepherd did not hear them. I am the door, Christ said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and we will, he will go out and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's only through Christ that you can come to God. And God makes that very, very plain. If you turn back to the book of Acts chapter 4, the book of Acts, turn with me here. This is not in my notes. I must have left this out. But let's turn here anyway. The Apostle Peter said in chapter 4 of Acts and verse 10, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders and become, has become the chief cornerstone nor is there any or salvation in any other. Get it? No other way. No other religion. No other way for salvation. Any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And yet you and I know that billions of people living in China, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, and elsewhere, and most of the Arab world, they do not understand Many of them have heard the name of Christ, but they've never heard any kind of religion actually preached, many of them, and certainly not the true religion. It's not their fault. God has not opened their minds yet. Yet God is fair. We know that. Turn now, if you would, brethren, to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, and beginning in verse 10. This is Mark chapter 4 in your New Testament. Let's begin in verse 10 here. Mark chapter 4 and verse 10. When he was alone, the disciples asked him about a parable he'd just given. And verse 11, Jesus said, For it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. So that, get it, here's what Jesus said. Seeing they may see and not perceive, they don't get it. They may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Yet I was taught in Protestant Sunday school along with millions of others, and I've talked to many of you brethren and many ambassador students who've come from various backgrounds. Normally your Sunday school teacher says, Oh, Jesus talked to these people about the tares and the wheat and the, you know, the olive gardens and the 
and the vines and so on because they were all farmers. He talked in those kind of languages to make it plain. No, he did not try to make it plain. Jesus shows they did not understand. He talked in a way so they could not understand. So let's understand God is not against them. He has simply not chosen to help them understand yet. It's a matter of timing. Now let's go, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians or to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, if you would. And let's turn here to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We then, as workers together with him, as co-workers, as I think the Moffat translation have it, many of you are co-workers as with brethren, we together with him plead with you to receive the grace of God, or not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day, and yet the commentators acknowledge the original quote in Isaiah 49, 8 is a day. In a day of salvation I have heard you. It's not the day of salvation. It is a day of salvation. God is giving people a chance now. Very few he's called out ahead of time, including you and me, and we can be very grateful for that. But most people do not understand. He is not trying to call them. It's not their fault. He is simply letting this world go its own way for about 6,000 years. Then he's going to intervene and teach people during the millennium. But what about all those billions of people who've lived this last 6,000 years that have not understood? Many of them never even heard the name of Christ, let alone what he taught. What about them? They are going to be given a genuine chance later on. They are not given their chance now. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. Notice again God's mind and God's mercy. Turn back with me to First Timothy this time. First Timothy, if you would. And let's turn to chapter 2. First Timothy, chapter 2. And we'll begin here in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says he wants men to pray everywhere for kings and all in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and reverence. We're not to pray that God converts all the kings and presidents, but that God would guide these men in authority so we can do his work in peace. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men. Notice verse 4. God desires all men, not some men, all men, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, of course, the Greek word here is epignosis. It doesn't mean every detail, but the overview. Everyone has got to at least be given a basic knowledge of the overview of God's truth so they have a chance. So they have a chance. That is God's will. And this verse makes that very plain because God is merciful Notice back in Matthew chapter 10 now, if you turn there with me, in Matthew chapter 10. And notice the scripture here in Matthew 10 and verse, uh, let's start with verse 14. Matthew 10 and verse 14. Jesus here said, whoever will receive you, not receive you, nor hear your words, he told the disciples when they went out. When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Uh, surely I say to you, verse 15, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah 
Think about those ancient cities that were absolute sexual debauchery, homosexuality, men raping men, every vile thing you can imagine. We're headed that way now. A lot of you know that. So he talks about being almost the worst thing that people could get into. But he said it's going to be more tolerable for those pagan cities in the day of judgment than for that city, the city that would not receive his apostles right then. More tolerable. How could it be more tolerable if they're all going to go to the lake of fire? It's more tolerable because there is, as he calls it, a day of judgment. There's the word anacrino, diacrino, various forms of it that are translated judgment. And it does not necessarily mean sentence. Check it up. It's often a time of trial and test. It's not a matter of passing out a sentence. It's a time of trying and testing and giving them understanding for the first time in their lives. So even the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and these pagan cities will be given an understanding later. Notice Matthew 11 now. Turn to the next chapter, Matthew 11 and verse 20. He began to upbraid the cities in which his mighty works had been done. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these ancient pagan cities, they would have repented long ago on sackcloth and ashes. That shows you something, doesn't it? God realizes that those pagans were not more evil than the Jews of his day. They were not called. God did not give them any understanding. But they would have already repented, Jesus acknowledged. And Jesus was God in the flesh. This is what God himself says. They're not being called. God did not give them an opportunity. If they had heard, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. Here it is again, the day of judgment. A day of judgment is coming. Not the passing out of a guilty sentence, but a time of trying and testing. That day is coming, my friends, and we need to really appreciate God's understanding, how God is letting man go his own way, try out his ideas of, of, of his government, his ideas of education, his ideas of religion, and come to realize finally, which we're going to begin to do in the next few years, that all our stuff doesn't work. Our government doesn't work. Our governments around the world are breaking down. Man's way of life is going to lead to death and suffering and destruction. Finally, man will realize that. Then in the great white throne judgment, it will have meaning to him. And he will be willing to accept the truth of God when God resurrects him and gives him an opportunity. Now let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 23, if you would. Leviticus 23. And here we learn about the plan the plan of the great God is given to our ancestors, many of us are partly Israelitish, in ancient Israel. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. And remember, brethren, please remember this always. Jesus quoted continually out of the Old Testament. Please check this up for yourself. I have many times. He constantly talks about the what we call the Old Testament as Scripture. He shows that God was speaking back there. These words in the Old Testament were Scripture. And Jesus said in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, look up in Luke 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, not some, but by every word of God. 
So we're to put the Old Testament scriptures together. We know what the new, which magnified them, but did not do away with them and lived by every word of God. And that's what we in the living church of God are doing with God's help. Every word, including the Old Testament. So here's what God gave. The Eternal spoke to Moses, Leviticus 23, verse 1. Speak to the children of Israel and say, The feast of the Lord, not feast of the Jews. The Protestants constantly try to say these are Jewish. No, he says these are feasts of the ever-living one, which you shall declare to be holy convocations, places of commanded assembly. These are my feasts, God's feasts, not Jewish. Get that straight when you talk to your friends. These are God's feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy convocation, which means a commanded assembly. You're not invited. You're told to come. God gives you instruction, and you're not to do any work in it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim then at their appointed times, verse 4. And the King James is better translated, in your seasons, because these feasts were based upon the harvest seasons of Palestine, and they're talking about God's spiritual harvest, which he's going to bring about when he finally calls every human being to understanding and an opportunity to be given eternal life. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. We know that's the first thing in God's plan that shows us that Christ died for us, and we have to accept Christ as the Passover lamb whose blood paid for our sins. And as God guided the death angel in ancient Israel to pass over the Israelites' houses when they had that blood on their door, so Christ passes over us. God passes over us and forgives our sins today if we're under the blood of Christ. That's the first thing in God's plan. The second thing is God's plan comes next. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord, Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And on the first day, as a holy convocation, he goes on to show. And on the seventh day, you're not to have leaven in your home all that time. Many times the New Testament indicates leaven is a type of sin. So they were to put leaven out of their homes. They were to have no leaven. Right after you accept Christ as your Savior, pictured by the Passover, you're to grow in grace and in knowledge. You're to put leaven out. You're to put sin out. And you're to become like God. The next thing is the Feast of Pentecost or First Fruits, as it's called in the Old Testament, when they offer this wave sheaf offering asking God's blessing on the early spring harvest, which was called in the Old Testament many times the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. He describes that. Verse 15, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths, count 50 days. So the word Pentecost literally means 50th. 50th. It's the 50th day. And we used to keep it on Monday, some of you know. And Mr. Armstrong was thoroughly, thoroughly checked into it and realized that the count begins actually not later than, but right on the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. So 49 days later, of course, is the Sabbath, but then Sunday is Pentecost. So it's on that day, and that picture is, of course, the first fruits offering, how God is calling out a few, not 
He's not trying to save the whole world. It's the feast of first fruits to the Lord, it says in verse 17 here. And it's to be a holy convocation, verse 21. It's a statute forever. Pentecost is a statute forever in all your dwellings. Then he says in verse 24, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath of rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. They were commanded to come together. Trumpets were an alarm of war. They were warning about the terrible time of trial and test and the great tribulation, which we're entering right now, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. Then the next thing is the Day of Atonement. Verse 27, on the tenth day of the seventh month shall be a day of atonement or at one minute. It shall be a holy convocation. You're to fast. You're to afflict your soul. Right after Christ comes, Satan is banished. And, and of course, God causes people to really repent in a way they never had before. And they turn to God in fasting and prayer. And so it pictures the time when Satan is finally banished and the world is at one with God right after Christ's coming. We read in Revelation 20, Satan is put in the bottomless pit. He won't be there to bother those people anymore. So at verse 32, a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month. That shows you how to keep the Sabbath on the ninth day of the month at even until the next day. And so that is how you count the Sabbath from sunset to sunset. <clears throat> and then verse 34, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Tabernacles. So right after atonement, five days later, comes the feast we're observing right now or just finished observing. The Feast of Tabernacles is called, as we've explained through this feast, the Feast of Booths, dwelling in temporary dwellings, or sometimes called a number of times the Feast of Ingathering. In gathering, picture the great fall harvest when God sets his hand to save the whole world. So when Christ comes back, the whole world will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and people go up to Jerusalem and learn his laws and his ways. And that is pictured by the wonderful rejoicing during the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the Feast of Ingathering, the big harvest at the end. But still what happened to all those people who died in the Titanic when it went down? What about all those people who died in the Holocaust? What about all those people who died down through time in the terrible wars of human history, the plagues, the suffering? What happens to them? They never had a chance. God never opened their mind. So the next time is undoubtedly picturing that. So he shows in verse 36, on the eighth day, the day right after the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, you are to offer an offering made by fire, a sacred assembly. You shall do no work in it. So it's a very solemn time. God does not explain the meaning of it there. But when you put the whole Bible together, it becomes very clear. This day, the eighth day, right after the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasts seven days, is the time when God gives all the other people a time of opportunity. An opportunity, their first opportunity a lot of times your Protestant friends will argue, say, no, God doesn't give people a second chance. No, he doesn't. This is not a second chance, brethren. Understand that. This is not a second chance. It is the first chance. It is the first genuine opportunity where the God opens their minds and they really understand what it's all about. Otherwise, they do not understand what it's all about. So we've got to really, really appreciate that. 
what God has done and is doing in giving us these festivals and the whole meaning, the whole meaning of life. So here we can understand this, and I think we need to really appreciate it. Turn, if we would now, if with me, to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 now in your New Testament. And turn here, and of course this is beginning in verse 1, Revelation 20 and verse 1. You'll notice here, brethren, the whole thing of God and what God is doing. In Revelation 19, it shows that verse 16, Christ comes back as King of kings, the Lord of lords. Chapter 19 of Revelation and verse 16, he comes back. And then, of course, there's this terrible time of suffering when he has to crush the nations. It says in verse 20, Revelation 19, verse 20, the beast was gathered, captured in this final rebellion against Christ and with him the false prophet. Brethren, we are winners. These people are going to conquer soon. They're going to conquer our people. Hopefully you'll be taken to a place of safety. But they're going to conquer our American and British people. But the beast and the false prophet who worked signs in his presence with which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and, and those who worshipped his image, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's at the end of this age. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne on the horse. And all the birds of heaven were filled with their flesh. God is going to simply crush the armies of the beast. Man cannot fight against God and live. We are winners. We will be in Christ's army. But right after Christ comes back to this earth as king of kings, and after the millennium, then what happens? Notice now, notice, let's read this very carefully and really understand it in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old. So here's Satan, the devil, who is the devil and Satan. He shows that clearly and bound him for a thousand years. So Satan is bound for the entire millennium. The word mill means a thousand. So Christ is bound, or Satan is bound for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should what? That Satan should deceive the nations no more. It's not their fault. God is allowing Satan the devil to deceive the people in China and India and Russia and all these pagan nations. And most of the people in the Western world, they don't understand. You know that. You talk to old Uncle Joe, who might be a drunkard or others. Most of your relatives don't understand. They're not mean. God has not called them yet. It's not their fault. God has a great plan to let them, the nicey-nice Protestants and the Catholics who mean well, and remember, they're not all bad. Many of them are trying to do good. And brethren, let me understand something. Let me help you understand something. To the degree that our sweet old grandmothers or aunts or whoever are trying to do God's will, to the degree that they follow the Bible, God will bless them to that degree. That's why America was blessed to the degree that we were taught the ways of God. We were never taught that we should have been. 
But to the degree that we had a decent family structure, to the degree that we learned to live good lives, we were blessed to that degree. We had great blessings. We won World War One. We won World War Two. All the things came our way. Now we're turning away from God and our society is going right down the tubes and you know that as we turn away, God is going to take away all those blessings. We have won our last major war. America has no more because we have turned away from the God who gives us life and breath. And you're going to see how that's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. I'm sorry, but God is allowing that to let men learn his lessons. They're blind. They do not get it. So God has to put Satan in the bottomless pit that he should deceive the nations no more. He's been deceiving them until the thousand years were finished. At the end of the thousand years, something happens. But after these things, he must be released for a while, save to the devil. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls. So Christ looked here in this vision and John did and saw souls of them who had been beheaded. Some of our brethren may have their heads chopped off. Some of us may have our heads chopped Do we think about that? That's the little analogy he uses. I don't like to think about that, but I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Think about it. They looked on the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and had who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands. We all think of that was something back in the dark ages when people had that happen. Not necessarily. Many of us are going to be called up to tribunals. Brethren, many of you are going to be tried and tested and brought before courts. Jesus made that plain. That hasn't happened yet. So we've got to be ready. We've got to have faith and courage as a church. You individually have got to have faith and courage. I've got to have faith and courage. And God has tested me and tested me now for about 67 years that I've been in the work of God. And I've been tested in a thousand different ways with guns pointed at me, rocks thrown at me, all kinds of things. But God has always helped me. But the time may come when God will allow me to be a martyr. He might allow some of you to be a martyr. We must not give up. We must never, ever turn aside. God does not want that. Keep your place there. But I want to just say something to you right now about that particular matter. Turn to Revelation 21. Across the page here. Revelation 21, verse 7. Jesus said, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Tapata, meaning the entire universe. And I will be God, his God, and he shall be my son. If we overcome, we can't just float into God's kingdom. Stir yourselves as you go back home into this rotten world. Have faith and have courage. You're going to need it. Stand for something. But it says the cowardly. Notice what God starts. This is Christ speaking. The cowardly, unbelieving abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. God does not appreciate people who lie. Shall have their part in the lake of fire which and brimstone, which is the second death. What does he start with? Cowards. Brethren, think about it. You and I cannot be cowards in these days just ahead. We've got to be strong. 
we've got to prove and to know and know that we know that there is a personal God, that that God is our Father. This is God's church that we're in, the church which is called the church of God, which has come right down through the ages. And it has always been a people of God which kept God's Sabbaths and some of God's holy days. They didn't all know about all of them because many of them didn't even have an entire Bible. They just had bits and pieces, but they tried to obey God. And now at the time of the end, God raised up Herbert Armstrong and began to help him explain the Bible. Many of you older brethren know night after night after night all across the South, what we call the Bible Belt, his voice rang out. And greetings, friends, around the world. And they heard it over and over, him explaining and expounding the Gospels, the prophecies, the meaning of life. Millions heard, and now we're carrying on that work. I'm the only one left from the early days of this work, as most of you know. All the others are out of commission or dead. I'm carrying on. This is the church of God. You're in the true church. We're going to do the work of God. We're going to do it to the end, and God is going to raise us, empower us as never before if we go forward with faith and courage. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to have courage. And I hope you'll do that with all of your being as you go back into this world. Have faith and courage. Know that God is there. Brethren, all the things Mr. Armstrong talked about, about the coming United States of Europe, as it was beginning, and now it's put it coming together more than ever. And, of course, they're talking about the fact that the, the Europeans, the, the, uh, would, the Russians would back off and the Eastern Europeans would break away. The Berlin Wall would come down. That happened. God has taken away all the sea gates only that were given our peoples and only Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands are left. All the others are gone. The Suez Canal is gone. The Panama Canal is gone. The Straits of Malacca, all of them are gone. All these specific things affecting hundreds of millions of people have happened. This is the only church that really understood all those things. Because God gave Mr. Armstrong that understanding. So you are part of that church. You are part of that work. We need to get out and help this world understand, help your brethren, your friends around the world the best we can. And God will reward us forever. If we do that, we will be laying up treasure in heaven because we have been serving our Creator. We've been trying to really help our people. We will have been proclaiming the Ezekiel warning to help our people wake up and know what's about to happen unless we as a people turn back to God. So I hope that we can understand and have faith and courage. The unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, all liars shall have their part of the lake of fire. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't go along with all this garbage coming out about men marrying men and all the other absolute spiritual rubbish and rot that's coming from Satan the devil through false leaders. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. God is God. He's beginning to intervene in a powerful way, and I hope we get that. So back here it shows some are going to be beheaded for worshiping God and because they did not receive the mark of the beast. And they lived and reigned a thousand years. And so, of course, uh, we know that during millennium, why uh, the true church of God is going to uh, be there. But the rest of the dead... He goes on here in verse 5. The rest of the dead 
that is, those who did not come up in the resurrection of the millennium, those who are still dead and did not live again until the thousand year were completed. This is the first resurrection, talking about that first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over this, him the second death has no power. Once you're resurrected by God, there is nothing to stop it. You've got it made. We will have it made. We can say along with the Apostle Paul in Second Timothy 4 that I have endured, I finished my race. Behold, a reward, a crown is laid up for me. We want to be like that and have that confidence over him. The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years But what happens after the thousand years? Go on. Verse 7. Now when the thousand years are expired, now the millennium is finished. Satan will be released. It's amazing the carnal minds that we have, how quickly people could turn back. I remember always thinking that the college in Brick at Wood, England was more close to God because Mr. Armstrong spent so much time there. And I honor him, as you know. And I spent a lot of time there, too. But when the college was closed, most of the employees quickly left. No paycheck, no Sabbath. Wow, people can turn aside. That shook me even back then to a degree. But when the thousand years are finished, here are people that have learned God's ways. Christ has been on the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan will be released from the bottomless pit and will go out to deceive the nations. How can that possibly be? People are weak. You must not be weak. You've got to have faith and courage. You've got to be willing to fight for the truth. Do you want eternal life? Fight for it. Brethren, cry out to God. Fast and pray. Seek God. Go all out if you want eternal life. God's not going to just live it, give it to you if you have a good attitude in general, but you're not willing to stand for something. You've got to stand for something. You've got to be Christian warriors. You've got to do the will of God with all your heart and show God that you mean it. But Satan's going to get out of his prison and he goes out to deceive the nations, nations all over the earth, which are in the four corners of the earth. He goes out to Gog and Magog, apparently Russia especially, who have been pagan, who never knew much about God, to gather them up, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Yet they will have been under Christ all those years, but they may not have learned the lesson as well. And they went out on the breadth of the earth, these pagans who are now turned away from God because Satan is loose once again. Satan is powerful. Never forget that. And so they went out and surrounded the camp of the saints, the people of God down in Israel who are protected and the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire came down out of God from heaven and devoured them. God's not going to mess around that time. He does not let them even seem to win. They just start out and then they're crushed because now Christ is intervening directly. And the devil who deceived them was cast to the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the prophet, false prophet are or can be translated were cast. They were cast there already. And they shall be tormented, the beast and the false prophet, day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne. So here is the time when God is going to give people a genuine understanding that they never had before. 
a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Here is a great throne of judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Dead people don't stand up unless they're resurrected. So this is a special resurrection. Think about it. Dead people are not standing unless they're resurrected. They're resurrected here. The dead who are still dead, even after the millennium, the people of China and Russia and in all the world, my old Methodist grandmother, many people who are very sincere, your relatives who never understood, they'll be there then. God did not call them yet. He saw them standing before God and books were opened. And here the Greek word is biblos, the same word that's translated Bible. The Bible is opened. They finally understand the Bible. They did not understand the Bible before. So now the Bible is open to their understanding for the first time. And another book was opened. So the first one means the Bible. So here's another book, which is the book of life. They have the chance to have their name written in the book of life once they're resurrected in this great white throne judgment. And their mind is opened. Satan is now banished. So the book of life is put before them and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And when you understand the mind of God and all of God's examples, it's not he's not going to judge them by what they did do in their worldly life when they did not understand. He will judge them during this period of time, perhaps 100 years. It's indicated in the book of Isaiah. We don't know it. We can't base our salvation on that. But apparently about 100 years are resurrected and given a chance to know and to understand just like you and I do. And then they'll be judged by what they do when they understand. That's God's way. What they're written, they're according to the works by the things written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead, former dead people that drowned in the Lusitania and the sinking of the Titanic never had a chance. And death and the grave gave up the dead in them from the Holocaust, all these other people, little children who died for no reason. Why did God let Jimmy die? Well, God is letting the whole world die. And they don't have an opportunity in this life, most of them. No man can come to me, Jesus said, unless God calls them. And God shows over and over, broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow and straight is the way that leads to life. And few, few there are who find it. You are among those few. So let's powerfully appreciate that. The fact God has opened our minds. He's called us to understanding. He's given us an opportunity to be in the first resurrection, the best resurrection. So they were, they're brought up again. And death and hell were cast up then, and they were judged according to their works then. Then death and Hades, those who are still rebellion, are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, those who still have not repented. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So anyone still not repentant after this opportunity, this great white throne judgment will be put into the lake of fire and then in chapter 21, he describes, of course, the new heaven and the new earth. Now let's turn, brethren, back to Ezekiel, if you would, Ezekiel 37. And here we find God's description of this coming time 
from a different point of view, from the point of view of ancient Israel and what Almighty God's going to do. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. So here Ezekiel sees the whole valley full of dried bones, and they were indeed very dry. And he said, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live, these people that are dead? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones. Prophesy to these dry bones, these dead people. What is God saying to these dead people? O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, verse 5, and you shall live. A time of resurrection for people who have been dead. I will put sinews on you, bring flesh on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and then you shall know that I am the Eternal. Then you'll finally know who God is. This is talking, of course, to ancient Israel. But all through the Bible, God shows you that Israel is a type of the entire world. That God is fair. God is not partial. There's no respecter of persons with God. So if He gives them a chance, He's going to give the Gentiles a chance. He's going to give everyone a chance. Because that's the way God works. So He brings us back to life for those people who live. And He says, I'll put sinews, verse 6, on you and bring flesh upon you cover with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. They're literally brought back to physical life in this flesh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Now I know that some of these musical groups sing them bones, them bones, them dry bones, and they have a musical. I frankly don't like that, because it's kind of making fun and making light frankly, brethren, of one of the most awesome events in human history where God's going to resurrect my parents and grandparents and loved ones. It's not something to joke about. Some of you, as you see these things, events happen that this church is prophesying and all the things begin to happen that God has said very clearly, shaking the whole earth. You'll see this is a very awesome time. Absolutely awesome. One of the greatest understandings that any church or any people has anywhere. And you understand it. A time when these billions of human beings are come up again and be given an opportunity to be in the flesh, to be tried and tested, and the books are opened, the Bibles, the Bible is finally open to them, as it said in Revelation 20, then they can understand. God will open their minds, but they'll be in the flesh again and have this opportunity for a number of years, perhaps a hundred years. So I said, verse 8, indeed, as I looked, the sinews and flesh came upon them and skin covered them and there was no breath in them at that time. Then he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So God tells them to be given breath again and to come back to physical life, not eternal life yet, but to have an opportunity to live by the books, the Biblos, that they never had before in the flesh. So they're going to be tried and tested in the flesh just like we are. So I prophesied, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. 
you better believe it was a massive number of people. Then he said, Son of man, these bones are, here's God's interpretation, the whole house of Israel, not just Judah, but the whole house, all 12 tribes down through the last 6,000 years. And of course, as God is not a respecter of persons, it's going to be the Gentiles as well. God will give all of them the same opportunity because God is fair. They all come up. Billions of human beings will come up. The world is able to handle them. All during the millennium, you and I, brethren, are going to be given the opportunity under Christ's direction, along with the physical people, which we will guide as teachers, as kings and priests, to rebuild society, to make plenty of houses, to make good crops, to make good soil, and God will rebuild the earth. It will be able to take these people. God will see to it. So we'll be able to prepare the way. And God will guide us so they'll have a place to live for many years in the flesh and be tested just like you and I are right now. So he said in verse 12, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Billions of human beings of Israel are going to come back. And of course, billions of human beings elsewhere on earth will be brought back to life. Then you shall know and brethren, you need to know, and I need to know, we've got to really know that God is God. We've got to know that we have a Father in heaven that is a real spirit personality. Most of your relatives and friends in the world and co-workers, they don't know that. You've got to prove that to yourself. You've got to drink into this book as the revelation of God's mind, the way God thinks. Then you can have fill faith, build faith, walk with God talk with God continually, then you'll walk with Christ right on over into tomorrow's world, into the kingdom of God. You've got to put faith and trust in God. Then you can be there to help your old Uncle Joe or whoever it was as a drunkard and all these other people. You can help them and teach them in this coming judgment pine. So he says, Then you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit, God will put his Holy Spirit in these people, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the ever-living one, that God is God, and that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. So this is a big lesson. We need to really understand and appreciate this lesson, brethren. God Almighty has opened our mind to a truth that very few people understand. Just a few thousand out of the 7.3 billion people, you are blessed to understand this. You have a purpose in life. You can prepare to be full sons of God in tomorrow's world. And I hope you can grasp that opportunity. You've been hearing sermon after sermon during this feast. And I hope all of us will drink in of those sermons. When I'm at the feast, I try to listen to the other sermons too and learn. I've got to keep learning because God's going to keep testing me right up to my last breath. I know that. I hope you will know that. We've got to literally give our lives to God and mean it. We must not just play church and be nice on the Sabbath. We've got to surrender our hearts and minds and wills to the Creator. We've got to think as God thinks, feel as God feels, and want what God wants. Do you want what God wants? Are you willing to go through trials and tests and even martyrdom? If that's what God wants, you and I must have Christ in us. 
Remember my favorite verse in the Bible, and I hope all of you will get it. The Apostle Paul was inspired by God to say, Galatians 2.20, read it if you're not familiar. I hope all of you will become familiar. It will be at least one of your favorite scriptures. It's my favorite scripture in a certain way because it's the best one-verse description of true Christianity in the Bible. The whole Bible is a description, but this is one verse. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul said, yet I live. See, Paul was alive, yet not I. And the very word he uses here in the Greek is ego, yet not the I, the selfish self, not the ego, but Christ lives in me. That's the key. Christ lived in Paul. Christ must live his life all over again inside of you if you're going to be in this coming kingdom. This government of God as a king and priest helped these billions of people later on to help the others during the millennium and to help people right now in the work of God. Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live with the faith of, not just faith in, but the correct translation is the faith of Christ's very faith in you. You've got to have faith. You've got to have courage. Christ's faith. I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God grant that you can come to that kind of understanding. So we need to really appreciate this truth and be there to help these people. Now, brethren... Turn with me, if you would, to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 11. Turn to Romans chapter 11. And notice what Almighty God tells us here after telling us how to live and serve God in Romans chapter uh, 10 and earlier on in 11. Well, he talks about the time is going to come. This is Romans 11. I'll begin in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So he's talking about the mystery, how God calls different people in different ways. This mystery, lest you should be wise in your own hearts, that the hardening in part has happened to Israel. So God has blinded Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's called millions of, not millions, but thousands of Gentiles down through time because the Jews and the Israelites were too hard-hearted. And so all Israel will be saved. God's going to give them a real full opportunity later, all Israel. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28. Remember, we're here in Romans 11, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That is, the Gentiles. But concerning the election, I'm sorry, talking to the Gentiles, how the Jews were persecuting them. They're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God knew that the ancient Jews were very capable and, and, and had capacities beyond other nations in many ways. And God called them. God loved them. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Once God plans something like that, He's going to bring it about. For as you were once disobedient to God, you Gentiles, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. In other words, God has opened up their place for you, so to speak, 
Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. As God has shown you mercy, you Gentiles, he's going to show these carnal Israelites mercy in his time. For God has committed them all to disobedience. God has allowed that. God has allowed the Jews to be blinded. God has allowed most of our Israelites friends out here in America and Britain to be blinded. They don't get it. He has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all, that they might come to the place that they, where they're at the end of the rope. They know they're in trouble. There's no way out. Who can save them? Only God can save them. Only God can save you. Only God can save me. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ, him cleaning us up, scrubbing us out through his spirit, living his life in us. That's the only way we're going to make it. We'll have to come to understand that. Finally, all will understand that, including all the Israelite people. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He tests different people in different ways. He lets you go through trials and tests and suffering. He causes the sun to be blinded for, for thousands of years. Finally, he opens everyone's mind, each one in his time, as he knows is best, because he is God. He has a big picture in his mind beyond what you and I have. And brethren, we need to understand that. Oh, the depths, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? You see, we're to have the mind of Christ, it tells us. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. We're to have that mind and begin to think of the big picture begin to think of the things God thinks of. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? We don't have the mind of the Lord by ourselves. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. God has a magnificent plan and the world does not understand that plan. Because they've been blinded. They've been cut off from the great God who gives you and me life and breath. So, brethren, let's appreciate awesomely, right down to the depths of our being, that our Father in heaven made us in His image. He made us male and female. And all the joys that that can bring of love between a man and a woman, the family unit, children, a way of life, all the things we know and we can appreciate. The world is trying to throw it in the ash can. Let's bring it back out and thank God for that and honor God in our lives and honor God in the way we live in every aspect of our lives because God is God. He's going to give everybody a genuine opportunity. It's a matter of timing. And we in this church understand that. And so as we go home from this feast, we must go home with great joy knowing that we have a precious truth. This truth is a magnificent truth. In fact, you, you understand that, I hope. Billions and billions of human beings, and they're going to be brought up in a massive resurrection and given perhaps a hundred years on this world to have an opportunity in the flesh to come to know God in the way you and I are and have the books, the Biblos, the Bible open to their understanding and be judged then fairly out of what they do once they understand because God is fair. It's not His will that any be lost, but that everybody Everybody be given an overview, an understanding of the truth. He will do that. He is fair. You and I have got to learn to awesomely appreciate that 
and to go all out for God's kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, seek first, not last. Don't just play church. Seek first above everything else in your life, ahead of your job, your hobbies, your TV watching, your playing internet games, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we're everyone to do. Seek that with all your heart because you want to be in God's kingdom. You want to live forever. You want to be with Christ and the spirits of just men made perfect. You want to be there and you want to live forever in Christ's kingdom and in God's family and fulfill the purpose which you've been created, the purpose which you've been called. God will bless you. God will guide you in it. But you've got to have faith and courage and you've got to walk with God and walk with Christ with all your heart and keep right on. Never, never, never give up. Never, ever turn aside. So go back home, brethren, with joy and faith and courage beyond what you've had before. Learn the lessons of this feast. Review your notes. Review the lessons of this feast. And as we go home, drive carefully. Pray for one another. Pray for God's people everywhere. And ask Almighty God with all your heart to help every one of us do what God says. To help every one of us walk with God and walk with Christ with all of our hearts. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly with all of our hearts now and forever. Thank you, brethren, for your love. Thank you for being part of God's church, for your willingness to, to listen to Him. And I appreciate it. Let's pray for one another. And we'll see you in the kingdom. May God bless all of you. Go home with joy.